HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Brianna Kurtz, host of Eat Your Words. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, and welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here today, all the way from the West Coast, Chef John Cox of Sierra Mar at the Post Ranch Inn in Big Sur, California. Um, sorry that we don't have plentiful, bountiful produce and seafood awaiting you here right now. It's, you know, a little early in the season for that. You kind of get to live that life all year round. Michael, thank you so much for having me out here. It's a real pleasure to be on your show. Yeah. Um, we do. We, we're amazed. Uh, it's amazing to have all the products that are available in California. You're a man of New Mexico. You're a man of this very um, primal cuisine, in a sense. I mean, at least I know it as hatch chilies and, and cheese and maybe like Navajo fry bread. I mean, it, it's to the land. Um, what kind of stuff did you eat and you know, uh, cook with your, your, your family when growing up? Uh, that's true. Growing up out just, just outside of Santa Fe was a huge inspiration for me um, as a chef. And I started cooking professionally when I was about 14 years old at just a little neighborhood bistro in Los Alamos. So it wasn't really that uh, down and dirty New Mexico cooking, but that was certainly what I was eating on a daily basis. So the red chili, the green chili, it's very close to my heart and uh, something I still love to uh, put into my repertoire at Post Ranch. Yeah. Do you still get, what is that, the acid reflux? The, you know, does it still burn you like it used to? <laughs> well, I don't know about the acid reflux, yeah. but uh, I, I love the spice. You know, when you've uh, grown up in New Mexico, it's really hard to find that same level of spice and really any other cuisine. Yeah. I mean, it's funny going out to ethnic restaurants, um, you know, particularly Southeast Asian, there's always like the tamed down version. And then you have to ask for, no, I want the real, the spicy version. Do you feel that way when you go out for like Mexican or Tex-Mex or, you know, that style of cuisine you're used to? I think that's true. Um, I actually just got back from a trip to Oaxaca and I expected the food to be incredibly spicy. But what I found that was it's I mean, just like any good uh, cuisine, it's a balance of spice and acid and sweetness. And that's really, you know, what makes a great meal, I think. You need it to be interesting and uh, 
make you want to go back to the plate. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're a balance of a lot of that, too. I mean, coming from, again, that very primal cooking of, of New Mexico, you decided, of all things, to go to Montpelier, Vermont for culinary school. I mean, why, why the Northeast Kingdom? Wow, you know, I was, I was actually, uh, I've always had a draw to restaurants. Um, going to Santa Fe and, you know, walking past a restaurant, just hearing the noise and the smells. I knew I wanted to be a chef since I was, you know, 14 or 15. Um, it's really just been an aspiration of mine for a long time. And when I started looking for a culinary school, I checked out the French Culinary Institute. Um, I checked out the CIA, uh, New England Culinary, and they're all amazing schools. They're all fantastic. But for me, it was just the right place in the right time. I went to Montpelier um, early spring, and it was snowing, and it's just this beautiful little New England town. And I said, if I have to spend two years really focusing on this uh, craft and learning, uh, what a what better place to do it than Montpelier? And, I mean, I, and I have no regrets. It yeah, was I mean, it's, it's idyllic and everything, but, I mean, it's starch-heavy. I mean, great grains, <laughs> but you, you're not getting, again, that bounty that you have in Big Sur. What what kind of foods and what kind of ingredients did you learn about in Vermont that weren't inherently uh, part of your repertoire already? Well, I, I'm a master at butternut squash. <laughs> I can do it any way you want. Really? Do you have, like, a sash and a badge about butternut squash mastering? <laughs> I think every New England culinary student probably should. But yeah. <laughs> luckily, I wasn't there during the winter semester. Um, I started there in the spring, was able to leave just before it got too hot, uh, came back for the fall. It was pretty uh, pretty perfect, actually. So, yeah. uh, And actually, New England has an amazing bounty of products, um, and I think you appreciate it even more because they're not always there at your fingertips. So when the apple season starts or when the first greens start in the spring, the wild ramps, it's uh, it's really an awesome experience to cook up here. I always loved it. Yeah, so I mean, it is temporal. You know, things things are a little fleeting, and then from there, going to Big Sur, again, you're back into this uh, basket of everything. This is, what do they call them? Um, cornucopias, you know. You have everything at your fingertips. How do you not use everything at once? How do you, how do you teach yourself as a chef that restraint? I think that one of the most important things that I've learned as a chef is that especially in today's world, you really can get any product that you want anytime, whether you're in New York or in the middle of Texas, you can get any seafood, any vegetable. So something that's really benefited me is setting boundaries for myself. And at Post Ranch, the boundaries are really that 90 mile stretch of coast that makes up Big Sur. Uh, you, we have these 2000 foot sea cliffs just dropping into this dramatic Pacific Ocean. And it's a very harsh and extreme environment, which is one of the reasons why it's so beautiful. But within that stretch of coast, we have ingredients that you really don't find a lot of other places. Um, the abalone is really one of our most iconic ingredients. And there's dozens of different types of edible seaweed, uh, limpets. But you also have the whole mountain in, uh, range of ingredients, um, from acorns to dried summer grasses. It, Every week, there's a different uh, form of inspiration, and staying focused on that, I think, is what really makes the cuisine pure and a, a reflection of what Post Ranch is at that time. So you say harsh and extreme, and I'm, I'm bringing it to wine because, you know, I've been on those mountains of, of you know, crazy volcanic soil, and the, the the roots have to work so much harder, but then you get so much more out of it, and um, I feel like that that's part of, you know, the prize of being in Big Sur, even though... There are so many things ripe for the picking. It's finding these other things that, you know, are unexpected or, or, you know, harder to harness. I mean, well, 
you mentioned already abalone, and we'll talk about that in a second, and limpet, which is not like Fred Durst Limp Bizkit, um, <laughs> even though at first it sounded like some weird mashup of that. Um, but, but seaweed, you know, how it's kind of there, but not often used as much as it could, and it's a regenerative uh, ingredient. Tell me a little bit about your kind of infat- infatuation with that. Uh, I think that's a great point, Michael. A lot of the ingredients in Big Sur require a little bit of coaxing to pull out the best qualities. It's not like going and grabbing an apple out of an orchard. Um, These are wild ingredients that haven't been uh, bred for generations um, to be uh, culinary ingredients. So uh, seaweed, for example, it's one of our fastest replenishing natural resources. We have a giant kelp forest that goes all the way from Santa Barbara up to Northern California. And kelp's one of the fastest-growing organisms in the world. So it's only logical that as we look for more sustainable food sources, we would turn to kelp. Um, kelp on its own, it has a very almost mucus-like uh, well, <laughs> viscosity. You're me hungry about yeah, it. Yeah, it sounds delicious. Give me some it? of that with some natto and like all the, all the all the snotty things at the same time. Yeah, it's super salty. The texture is not really great. So you have to look at what attributes it has. And for me. Um, the two most beneficial things that kelp bring to the table are the glutamates and the salt. So if you use it as a, an agent in curing, if you uh, press pieces of fish between it, it's going to bring out an incredible texture and boost uh, the flavor of the fish at the same time. If you want to eat it as a vegetable on its own, I found that uh, pickling the kelp or quickly blanching it really takes down the salt and also changes um, the texture of the plant. Well, I mean, you say glutamate and from a scientific you know, standpoint. I, I know what that is and what it does, and you know, it, it's found in you know a lot of far east fermentations, misos. Uh, you know, even trace amounts in in soy sauces. So you get that umami out of out of seaweed. Um, but again, regenerative. You're taking like the tops off, right? You just snip a little bit of the top, right? Uh, some kelp in the Monterey Bay grows up to five or six feet a day, so it's a literally day. impossible to exhaust this resource yeah. uh, we're so far from that right now um but not a lot of chefs have caught on to using fresh kelp most chefs that are using kelp are using the dry japanese uh, kombu yeah and i mean just within that how much different is fresh kelp to work with than the dried you can just uh you know put it in a dehydrator and you pretty much have the same thing as kombu it's a little bit the california leaves are a little bit uh, smaller but what you really have to get past is that texture um, when you blanch it or you saute it, um, it really becomes a totally different ingredient. So I think that's the important thing is to take these ingredients and really uh, work with them until you find what they want to do. It's the same thing with acorns or a number of ingredients down there on the coast. I want to talk about that coast again because it's like almost too pic- picturesque not to have like an image of it. And, and we can wax poetic and we can, we can describe it, but people can also go to postranchkitchen.blogspot.com to see some of your photography rainbows, sea otters, which I like how you had a little caveat that those otters are not on the menu, but they're cute as cute can be. But you're literally sitting, what, 1,200 feet high on, on you know, Highway 1 looking, overlooking the Pacific Ocean. What's it like to wake up and see that? That's true. I, I remember the first time that I stepped into the post-ranch kitchen, and I was right out of culinary school. It was my uh, first job after graduating, and you kind of step down into this hobbit hole of a building that has a green living roof and you you know at the time our kitchen wasn't nearly what it was today it was a lot more uh we'll say rustic so you walk (laughs) into the kitchen and you look out the kitchen pass and 
all you see is just blue Pacific Ocean. We're we're perched at you know almost airplane height. It feels like you're flying over uh, the fog or the clouds on some days. Um, you're really just looking at this expansive view of about 90 miles. So it's it's kind of an out of this world experience. So um, if like you don't barf driving there along <laughs> Route One, you get vertigo by at least standing too close to the edge. <laughs> Every day uh, when I walk up to the ridge, we call the ridge the part um, of the property where the actual hotel is located. And it's this kind of narrow piece of land that looks over the Pacific. And then to our east is the Ventana Wilderness. And you have these four or 5,000 foot mountains that just uh, shoot up. And no matter how many times I go up to that ridge, it's always different. And it's always amazing. And even though I've traveled and worked around the country, I've never experienced something like Post Ranch. It's just really a magical place. Well, I mean, even just the rooms and suites and private homes on property, I think there are about 40 of these. I mean, they, they all use natural, sustainable materials, uh, have rugs that are handwoven by indigenous weavers. I mean, there, there's this dogma, if not ideology, that kind of encompasses post-ranch. Do you feel like you had that before getting there, or do you have to live and breathe it there to kind of entertain those values? I think that living it and breathing it is definitely important. And having spent um, close to 12 years um, working with post-ranch and passport resorts, that's really a part of who I am now as a chef. But... You know, I really appreciate all the efforts that Post Ranch has made to become sustainable and really um, become one of the most iconic uh, green properties. You have to think back that when the Post Ranch was founded over 20 years ago, uh, this wasn't nearly as popular as it is today. So they've really been a front runner on a lot of these green initiatives and uh, sustainable practices. As you have as a chef. And we're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about the amazing aquaculture of Sierra Mara at the Post Ranch Inn in Big Sur. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. from 17th Street Barbecue in Southern Illinois, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell, here again with John Cox of Sierra Mar, of the Post Ranch Inn at Big Sur, California. It's a lot to say in one breath. I just have to take a second, and we're back. Aquaculture, because you are on the coast, and you, you see some of the most amazing seafood you know, literally in the world coming in to your restaurant. Um, but you're not looking too far. That's what's so amazing. It's right there for you. Tell me about the abalone. So we're right at the doors of the Monterey Bay Marine Sanctuary. And we're lucky to have a resource which I think very few people have access to. And that's the Monterey Abalone Company. Um, they grow uh, 
indigenous red abalones from Monterey in a very sustainable way. Um, literally every aspect of their operation um, is compliant with these very, very strict standards of the uh, sanctuary. So it's really an above-board operation. All the abalones are raised in open water uh, cages. They're fed a indigenous uh, diet of different kelps and algae. So they're a fantastic product. And because you can't legally serve wild abalone, it's uh, really the absolute closest product you can get to that true red abalone flavor. And I mean, for people that don't know what it is and aren't used to it, because you see abalone maybe sometimes at Chinese restaurants, maybe. Um, but w- what kind of you know flavor and texture does it have? Sure. So abalone is probably most uh, known for its shells. They're that really iridescent rainbow-colored shell that you see a lot in jewelry. or They're the geode of the sea. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but when you look at them from the outside, they really just look like a rock, um, you know, clenching onto this uh, uh, turbulent uh, coastline. And uh, they're kind of a reddish-brown color on the outside. On the inside, you have this one giant foot, which is the part that you eat. So it takes about six years for an abalone to get to the size of the palm of your hand. And that's one of the reasons why um, they're such a um, delicate marine resource and also why it takes so long to grow them in captivity. Um, Six abalones make up about a pound for the smallest size you can get, and that's about $30. So even in California where they're um, raised, they're still an expensive product, and you really don't see them that much outside the area other than, like you mentioned, a few... uh, um, Chinese restaurants are mostly they're dry. Yeah. Yeah. You see them in the little container, always dried, but you showed me a limpet and tell me what that is and how it's similar to the abalone. So a limpet is something we just recently came across. And, uh, one other thing that the Monterey abalone company does is about half their business is they collect marine specimens for aquariums around the world. And this has been an incredible opportunity for me to work with things that I never even knew existed. And limpet's definitely one of those items. It's the one of the closest relatives to abalone. It has kind of a it's a similar shape to the abalone, but it has a crazy leathery black skin. It kind of comes up and makes this uh, monster-like eye. It's a very very strange looking creature. But when you cook it, um, you braise the outside of this limpet uh, just very very low heat, and it has the sweetness and that kind of small salinity that the abalone has but it takes on this unctuous uh, texture kind of like braised bacon it's it's something unlike anything i've ever had uh from the ocean and then the inside the foot has a texture very similar to abalone maybe a little bit more crisp and it's quite possibly one of the most flavorful um shellfish or mollusks i've ever had um during my research of the limpets one thing i found incredibly interesting was that uh, some of the hemoglobin that's found inside the limpet is one of the most promising um, cancer research vaccinations. It's a critical component in uh, whatever process they use to make this vaccination. So they're actually raising them uh, inland uh, for this study. And it just reminded me that, you know, beyond just being um, a source of food, these abalones and even the the spot prawns and the algae, um, they're just such amazing creatures and to be able to work with those and uh you know learn about them uh, that's an incredible opportunity so i mean there's depth and thoughtfulness to your food because you know you you respect and you you honor these things and you know uh especially seeing the effort that goes into raising and, and catching a lot of this seafood and 
the phenomenons of things like the squid boats. Um, these squid seasons are very short, but it, it, it's quite the event to actually see happening out in the ocean. The seasons can be quite short. Um, I drive about half an hour each day to get from Monterey, where I live, to Post Ranch Inn, and sometimes at night you'll see 40 or 50 boats um, lined up in one of these coves off the Big Sur coast, and they'll literally light up uh, 10 or 20 miles. Uh, These bright lights bring the squid to the surface um, where they feed, and one of the things that's really interesting to me about the squid is that you would just assume that we can go get a bucket and take fresh squid and take it to the restaurant, but it's not really the case. So much squid gets exported to China where it gets processed and frozen and sent back that for me to get my hands on five or 10 pounds of this fresh, you know, still pulsating squid, that's one of the most incredible ingredients that I can share with my guests because there's literally no way to get it commercially. You have to know someone or get it, even though there's tens of thousands of pounds getting pulled out every night. It's it's bonkers how much kind of native uh, proteins because I know that happens with eel in the states too gets that's gets exported but gets like flash frozen exported and then comes back on the retail market and you know again you're you're at this place where you see all these things living and breathing and they're accessible but they they really aren't all the time you're right and sometimes we're lucky to see them come back in retail form even frozen uh, things like spiny lobsters and Monterey Bay spot prawns just these amazing seafoods um they're amazing but they also command some pretty high prices so unless local chefs are willing to compete with the uh, markets in asia they're not going to see those products because fishing's a business and if the uh supply is higher somewhere else that's where they're going to sell it luckily there are other great businesses around you that provide other you know uh, um, ingredients uh, scooch cheese uh, foglin and fogline uh, chickens i mean it's not just all seafood there. You you have some really amazing ingredients up in the hills and in, in the surrounding areas. Right. We tend to put an emphasis on the seafood just because it's such a part of who we are. But um, I love the products that are coming from the mountains and from Carmel Valley. Um, one of the things that we've really integrated into the cuisine at Post Ranch is uh, acorns. Um, it used to be probably the most prolific uh, food source of the native population down there. But to take these acorns and turn them into a flower you'd want to use, you have to leach them to remove the tannins. It's about a 30-day process, and that doesn't include all the hours of uh, shelling them and grinding them. So by the time you get this uh, beautiful acorn flower, um, you know, with all the rage of gluten-free, um, acorn flour should be way more popular than it is right now. It is unbelievably tasty. I can see the slogan right now, acorns, not just for pigs. (laughs) But I mean, it's great that you're out there in the wild picking up these acorns and you're foraging for chanterelles, um, but then also making other products out of them, such as flour. And I also know you make a Big Sur fritikake. We do. Uh, That's actually on our new lunch menu. And the inspiration was, you know, we have all these different seaweeds that we get. We have these, uh, uh, what we call bay fruit, and what would it be? What would it taste like if we took the idea of furikake, which is a uh, Japanese seasoning mix that's often put on rice? Um, it contains lots of different uh, seeds and spices. But we wanted to constrain ourselves to the Big Sur coast, um, so we use sea salt. We use sea um, sea grapes, uh, kelp. Uh, bay seeds. Uh, There's about 10 different ingredients that go into this blend. And it has the same umami, salty, slightly spicy um, quality, but it is very distinctly Big Sur, which I think is uh, 
speaks to a lot of our cuisine. You know, you say very distinctly Big Sur, yet I have this little packet in front of me. Um, if I flipped it over and it didn't have this funny little scotch tape kitchen label on it, you know, you would not. Maybe it looks like a giant pack of soy sauce, but it's yucca syrup, um, which you're natively collecting from the land um, and turning into something that you were inspired about from trips to Oaxaca. So as much as everything is Big Sur, um, you have a very global idea of what you want to bring into that kitchen as far as you know, ideas and techniques. So w- what is this syrup? What was the impetus behind this? Well, it really came to me when um, we were touring these mezcal um, producers. Um, really, they're just tiny farms where they uh, take the agave and they put them into these large earthen pits and they roast them for four days. And when you pull these um, agave hearts out after they've been uh, roasting, which we were lucky to be there when they were actually doing this, uh, the farmer handed me a little piece and you taste it. And it's just, it's fibrous, but it's also... Uh, sweet and smoky. It has that scotch-like quality. Um, And it made me think a little bit about agave syrup, which is a pretty common ingredient. And I wondered, first of all, if you could make a smoked agave syrup, and then taking it one step farther, whether the uh, yucca that we have growing on the arid south coast of Big Sur, which are genetically similar to agave, would make a similar uh, product. And, you know, I did a ton of research. I couldn't find anything about anyone trying to uh, ferment yucca or um, distill it or make a syrup out of it, which generally is a pretty bad sign because uh, someone's always uh, <laughs> done it. Um, but we, I had a cook who brought me in a 60-pound wild yucca, and we smoked it. We roasted it for three days. We covered it in water. We reduced it down, and it wasn't looking very promising. It, we just kept reducing it until all of a sudden it took on this balsamic-like um, dark golden color. Um, had a little bit of bitterness, but it also had a very interesting uh, sweetness, smokiness. And by the time we'd fully reduced it, it really was very similar to a, a balsamic vinegar, but with a smoky um, agave-like uh, note. So I was pretty happy with it. We'll see what you think. Yeah, no, it's so cool because, of course, you have all these wonderful fresh ingredients, but you're taking the time to convert these things into other ideas. Uh, I know you've lately been playing with beets and the idea of literally Roquefort cheese. That was a little bit crazy, and I actually <laughs> haven't actually even uh, served it yet. But um, the idea was how um, common it is to, to pair uh, blue cheese with beets, and that it's really a tasty combination. There's a reason why it's done so much. But I wondered what would happen if you actually inoculated a beet with this uh, penicillin uh, Roquefort, which uh, is obviously used in the uh, cheese-making process. So we got it in a little batch. Uh, we mixed it up. We cooked the beets with a little bit of uh, salt and uh, vinegar, and then we inoculated them and dry-aged them for about uh, two weeks. And sure enough, they grew this uh, crazy blue crust on the outside. And I actually consulted with a couple of uh, biologists who specialize in uh, penicillin and determined that you know it's totally safe. Um, before I went and took a big bite out yeah. of one, <laughs> we sliced it up and we tried it, and it it was really interesting. The uh, Probably even more interesting than the uh, flavor of the beet was this texture. It was dense from dry aging, but it was uh, really tender. And it had, um, the only way I can describe it growing up in New Mexico is that smell that you get just after it rains for the first time. It's kind of this dusty, sagey, 
aroma, which if you're from the Southwest, you understand, but it's very unique, and I definitely picked it up in the beach. So I was happy with it. I'm not sure that I'm going to pursue it for the menu, but it was definitely an experiment worth uh, pursuing. Yeah, well, I love that the kitchen is a laboratory for you. But I want to go back to one ingredient, which I, I kind of neglected to mention in the aquaculture thing, is that you, you have these images on your website, on your blog spot, of Luvar. Luvar fish is a bycatch of, of tuna and swordfish boats. And I don't think I've ever heard of it, ever seen it, ever tasted it. I mean, how important is it for you to find things like that and bring them into the kitchen and educate people about them? We're lucky to have a couple of uh, really talented uh, fishermen who go out for us and uh, bring in different products. But fishermen are also really great salesmen. So when this guy called me up and said, you never see this stuff. It's the best fish in the world. You have to buy it. I was a little bit skeptical. I'd never even heard about it. So um, I think I was busy at the time and I said, okay, bring, bring me both of them. Uh, we'll check it out. And after a little more research, um, this Luvar is, um, it does come along the California coast every once in a while, but the the thing that's interesting about it is that you can't really catch it. Um, it's, it's an incredibly delicate fish, even though it's close they can get to be over 100 pounds but a hook just won't stay and they'll bite it the hook will come right out and they'll just swim on their way so you almost never see them caught commercially and when they do get caught the fishermen keep them so we took this fish a beautiful fish almost looks a little bit like a mahi mahi and it's kind of silver iridescent way and cooked a piece off and it kind of has that uh, sea bass really flaky really um tender texture but truly it was one of the best fish i've ever had and to be a chef and i've been doing this for you know a little over 15 years to to experience something i've never even heard of it, that's always a amazing experience and it happens uh, uh more often than you'd think in big sur yeah well i mean if you've never been to big sur obviously go and have that you know nuanced and new experience that john's been talking about because i know i'm going soon and i can't wait to be blown away with you know, not only your food, but the, the Vista alone. This is a very special place that we have in our country. So definitely check out Sierra Mar at the Post Ranch Inn in Big Sur, California. And, you know, see what John's working on in the kitchen as his crazy laboratory. Thank you so much for being on and hope to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. You've been listening to The Food Team on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.